Before we start the program, I want to introduce you to an event that's coming up this August. The Loma Linda Institute of Worship is offering a worship leadership certificate to help leaders and pastors take their congregation's worship experience to the next level. This August 9-12 through 12 event will include presenters Randy Roberts, Adriana Pereira, Nicholas Zork, Wayne Buckner, Richard Hickam, and more, and provide the opportunity to perform on stage with Steve Green and the Heritage Singers. Come sing, pray, write new music, share testimonies and resources, and grow together with like-minded worship leaders from across the world. Go to LLIW.net to register. Some places are hard to impossible to get into. You just can't gain access unless you know someone or have some kind of official business. It seems like one of those places is the White House. From what I can read, there is one security detail after another, making it almost, not completely, but almost impossible to get into unless you know someone, have permission, have been background cleared, or have an appointment. But somebody wanted to test that. None other than Shaquille O'Neal. Now, that's not an unfamiliar name here in the Southland. Shaquille O'Neal is used to doors opening for him. After all, he's seven feet, one inch tall. Back in 09, I don't know now, but in 09, he weighed 325 pounds. And he has what must seem like a fistful of championship rings. So he's used to doors opening for him. Well, thus it was that on July 26 of 2009, he was going to test the White House. Two days before that, on July 24, he had been on a radio talk show in the D.C. area. And somehow the conversation had turned to these kinds of things. Would it be possible for him to actually get into the White House without an invitation, without official business, and in fact, without really even knowing anyone. I want to read to you what O'Neill said on the radio talk show. He said, check this out. I got on a nice suit. I'm in D.C. paying a visit. I jump out of a cab in front of the White House. I don't use any of my political or law enforcement connections. If I go to the gate and say, hey, I'm in town. I'd like to see the president. Do I get in or not? That was the question. Well, two days later, he tried it out. July 26. Nice suit. Jumped out of the cab, insofar as a seven-foot-one man can jump out of a cab. Walked up to the gates of the White House. I want to get in. I'm here to see the president. And those guards... I'm sure all of whom knew Shaquille O'Neal must have looked up at him. Those guards were used to seeing him stand in the key and reject anybody trying to come in to the basket. And they returned the favor. <laughs> they said, you can't come in. They would not let Shaq into the White House. So Shaq tweeted out his response. I want to show you what he tweeted out. It's on the screen. He said, the White House wouldn't let me in. Why? <laughs> Why wouldn't they let Shaquille in? I guess it's because there are some places where it's very hard to gain access. Unless you have business, unless you have an invitation, unless you know someone. 
Now, that actually touches all of us at some point in our life, sometime or another, in some way or another. You may be, for example, a student here at Loma Linda University. It's a new year. You're a new student. But you have already spotted someone who has caught, captured your attention. You've seen that special person at chapel walking on the sidewalks. You don't have the courage to go up, and so you're trying to find out, do we have any common connections? Is there anybody I know that knows that person, and I can get an introduction? Or you might be a prospective student. You're hoping to get into dentistry or medicine or allied health, but you need a stellar recommendation. Who can you turn to? Who has a name with some political clout? Who can you ask to recommend you to the admissions committee? Or it might even be a patient. You work up at the medical center, and you have a patient that doesn't speak English. And so you start asking questions. Is there someone around here who speaks Spanish? Is there anyone who works on this unit that speaks Portuguese? Is there anyone that works in Loma Linda that speaks French? I need an interpreter. I need a go-between. I need a mediator. Or it could be that your experience comes not in any of those areas, but actually comes in the spiritual arena. You have within you a deep yearning, a thirsting, a hungering for something more than what you currently have. You're able to ignore it part of the time, work it into oblivion other parts of the time, eat it into oblivion on occasion, even watch TV it into oblivion at other times. But there do come those moments, those moments when you lie awake at night, mind racing, and you become deeply aware of this yearning desire within you. Desire for something more that the world has given. You've heard, in fact, you've recognized this as a spiritual yearning. But then there are the old tapes that play. Tapes you heard, you listened to growing up. God is severe. God is harsh. God is unforgiving. God is high and holy. God will not tolerate sin. And you just feel it's too big of a step. You need an intermediary, an intercessor, a go-between to get you access into the presence of God. Now, that is not a new yearning. It's been around for millennia. In the Old Testament scriptures, it was met by a system of sacrifices and priests and high priest. So if you had that yearning to come into the presence of God, the need to come before God, to receive forgiveness and grace, to enter into a relationship with God, you came to the priest. That human priest engaged in the sacrificial rites and ceremonies that gave you the sense, I am connecting somehow now with God. Now with the end of the Old Testament, that propensity to act in that fashion did not disappear. Oh, it would be hundreds, thousands of years, in fact, but it would make its reappearance. In the medieval church, 
the context and the climate was very much the same. For those people who yearn to come before God, who yearn to connect with God, have peace with God, their understanding was we must come to a human priest. And that human being will be the one, will be the intercessor, the go-between between us and God. That person will bring us into the presence of God. That was the understanding. And it was at that time that a group of people spearheaded by, more, by Martin Luther more than anyone else stepped to the front and said, when it comes to the question of who it is that brings us into the presence of God. Here is our answer. Solus Christus. Only Jesus. It's the fourth of the five solas of the Reformation. In this series, that's been our focus. Looking at those enduring realities of the Reformation. And today we come to this one. And we find that Martin Luther and his colleagues were not alone in affirming solus Christus, but that actually that is a sentiment that echoes forth, even though the language might be different, echoes forth clearly from the New Testament Scripture and in particular from the letter to the Hebrews. So I want to invite you to take your Bibles and turn to Hebrews chapter 4. If you're reaching for a pew Bible, Hebrews chapter 4. Hebrews chapter 4, page 1785. But before we read the passage, I'd like to suggest to you that there is a sentiment in the heart of the reader of the letter to the Hebrews that the writer of the letter is speaking to. We may not find it in so many words in the actual text, but as you read through this letter, it undeniably comes to the surface as the key desire in the heart of the reader. And it is this. I want to know God. I want to be in relationship with God. I want to come into the presence of God. I want to commune with God. But how do I do that? The writer of the letter to the Hebrews responds to that over and over again throughout the letter. The text we read today is just one of the places, but it is a particularly stellar place in which this writer answers that heartfelt, yearning desire. I want to come into the presence of God. Now, what was present in the Old Testament? What was present around the time of the Reformation, what was present at the time the letter to the Hebrews was written, is something that we often lack today in sunny Southern California. And that is this, a sense of the awesomeness, the grandeur, the holiness of God. We know God is good. And for that, we must be profoundly grateful. We know God is close by. For that, we must be deeply thankful. But somehow in the process of gratitude for that, we sometimes have missed out on the sense of the glory of the God 
that is our God. Not so the Hebrews. In fact, here in this very letter, before the letter ends, the letter writer will write the words, Our God is a consuming fire. God is high and holy and fully other than human. We've lost a sense of that grandeur. In fact, so much have we lost a sense of that grandeur that we'll walk into a worship service like this one, but anywhere, walk into a worship service and sit down and spend half the service on our phones, oblivious to the fact that we have come to worship God eternal and sublime and holy. And so it is that as these readers of this letter come with this piercing, penetrating, pungent desire, we want to come into the presence of God. We want to be in relationship with God. That their question would have been, how do we do it? Because there are some places like the throne hood of God, throne room of God, where we just can't get access. And then comes the answer. Hebrews chapter 4, I want to read verses 14 to 16. Notice what it says. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has ascended into heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. If we are looking for an intermediary, an intercessor, a go-between in any context... Two realities are required. That person must know and understand something of us, and that person must know and understand something of them. Those two things, if they are going to be an intercessor, and they must be such that both sides feel as though their needs, their desires, their wants, their hearts are understood and met. Went through a book not long ago called 13 Days in September. Carter and Begin and Sadat at Camp David. It's the story of President Carter back in the 70s bringing together the, the prime minister of Israel, Menachem Begin, and the president of Egypt, Anwar Sadat, and trying to somehow forge a, forge a Middle East peace with these two leaders and the people they represented who had so long been at odds. It's an interesting read. Interesting facets of what there unfolded and developed, the consequences of which we still experience and in some ways enjoy to this very day. But of all the pieces of that that are interesting, I found one to be particularly telling about the human condition. And that was the need of both of these two world leaders to be certain that this intermediary was fully listening to them and that they were getting a fair shot. 
Now, these will be my words, not the words of the author, Lawrence Wright. But this is how it unfolded as I would describe it. Each of them at different times saying the same thing. You're listening too much to him. Why is he getting everything he wants? Why you pay so much attention to him? What about my needs? Why aren't you spending more time with me? Now remember, these aren't kids on the playground. These are world leaders with world peace hanging in the balance, just wanting to be certain that that intermediary understands my position. Hebrews. Two things Jesus has that no other being in the universe possesses. On the one hand, fully God. The way this passage speaks of it is by saying he is the Son of God and he has ascended, he has passed through the heavens. The way other verses in Scripture in the New Testament would say it is he ascended and walked into, entered into the presence of the Father and is set down at the right hand of God. And there, their hearts beat in absolute unison. He is there understanding fully the way and the will and the heart of God. Understanding his love, his mercy, his compassion, his grace, knowing of his holiness and his awesomeness and his grandeur. Fully God because he is God. That's one side. But then our passage says, He's fully human. He understands our condition. He knows our context. He's lived our situation. So he is able to sympathize with our infirmities. And there you have it. Possessing the qualities no other mediator does or ever will. Absolutely involved in both sides and bringing them together. And that is why Luther and the other reformers, when they faced that issue, when they faced that question, how might I come into the presence of God? How might I come to know God? How might I have my sins forgiven? How might I confess them? How might I commune with God? They answered that question by simply saying, solus Christus, only Jesus. He is the one that unites heaven and earth, that brings together God and humanity in himself. Much later, pardon me, much earlier than the Reformation, much earlier, a, a scholar, a theologian, archbishop of, of Constantinople, Gregory of Nazianzus, captured the paradoxical elements in Jesus with these words. Jesus began his ministry by being hungry, yet he is the bread of life. Jesus ended his earthly ministry by being thirsty, yet he is the living water. Jesus was weary, yet he is our rest. Jesus paid tribute, yet he is the king. Jesus was accused of having a demon, yet he cast out demons. Jesus wept, 
yet he wipes away our tears. Jesus was sold for 30 pieces of silver, yet he redeemed the world. Jesus was brought as a lamb to the slaughter, yet he is the good shepherd. Jesus died, yet by his death, he destroyed the power of death. The paradoxical realities of our Lord, who gives us full and free access into the very presence of God, fully human, yet not one tincture of sin. Solus Christus. Now maybe you ask the question, but what does that mean practically for me here today? How does that affect the way I live my life this week? Well, I'd like to suggest to you that our passage, Hebrews 4, answers that in two ways. It affects us in pragmatic and practical ways, two ways. First of all, it gives us this assurance. Jesus empathizes with us. Jesus empathizes with you. Reread verse 15 from Hebrews 4. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses. But we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. He empathizes with us. He is able to say, I've been there. I've passed through that. I know its power and its strength. In fact, I know its power and its strength to a degree that you will never know it. And you say, how can that be? I've fallen into sin. How can he know the power of temptation in a stronger way than I do? Well, think of it this way. Let's suppose we had a large stack of weights here on the platform, and we were each to come up, and we were to see how much we could bench press. For some, weights would be removed. For others, weights would be put on, and they would continue, each one to try. Finally, each one of us hitting our limit. But there are still weights stacked here. The one who knows the full weight, the full power, is the one who will bench press every weight on the platform and still do it, leaving all of us behind, but being the only one to say, I know the true weight because I pushed it to the very end, to the point no one else reached. So he's able to empathize every step of the way. I remember when I benched that. Oh, that was a hard wait. That was a tough one. I understand. Professor and pastor named Damien Spikewright wrote about his experience of that sense of, of understanding our condition with these words, when I was in high school, writes Spike Wright, my father passed away rather suddenly. It was just two days before my high school graduation. At that time in my life, I was a baby Christian, immature and shallow. I was still drying off the baptistry waters. All I cared about was not going to hell. <laughs> but then my dad died. I found myself in a place I'd never been before. 
I wanted to hear God speak. I wanted to know what he had to say about this situation, how he was going to get me and my family through this difficult time. So I prayed and I waited for God to speak. Then came the day of the funeral. The church was packed. I sat on the front pew with my mother and two younger sisters. The Lutheran priest spoke, but I don't remember what he said. I continued to wait for God to say something. Then the service was over. It was the tradition of this church to have the family line up in the foyer. Everyone would file past us and offer words of condolence and encouragement. Tears were shed, hugs offered, and words were given. I don't remember what anybody said to me in that time, but I continued to wait for God to speak. Then I saw Kim O'Quinn. Kim was my age. We were in the youth group together. When she got to me, she didn't say a word. She had tears in her eyes. And she simply hugged me. And then she walked off. But I heard God speak. It dawned on me. Just months before, I had attended another funeral. The funeral for Kim O'Quinn's father. In that moment, I realized... She knew exactly what it meant to be me. Spike Wright finishes. If you want to hear God's voice in your life, look no further than the one who knows exactly what it's like to be you. He knows what it is to be human. He knows what it is to suffer. He knows what it is to be rejected. He knows what it is to pass through our experience. If you want to hear God's voice speak, allow your soul to be quieted long enough so that you can hear the one who was in the beginning say to you, draw near to me, and I will draw near to you. What does it mean pragmatically, practically, to say that Jesus is our go-between? It means, first of all, he can empathize fully with you and with me. But I think our text says there's a second pragmatic implication of that realization. And that is not only can Jesus empathize with us, but secondly, Jesus empowers us. He empowers us. Notice verse 16 again. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. In other words, we have full and free access. So let us come before that throne with confidence, or as the King James Version renders it, with boldness. Why do we do that? To receive mercy and find grace to help us. In other words, to empower us in our time of need. So that any time we face trial and temptation and sorrow and sense our infirmities, we come to him that he might empower us. You say, but Randy, I'm so weak. I don't know how to live the kind of life that God calls me to live. That's the purpose for which he empowers us. Preacher and writer John Ortberg writes about that. He's writing about that in the context 
of the fact that many of us want to share the glory. We want some credit for what we do in the process rather than just depending on the fact that he empowers. We do play a role, but it is his power. We're trying to share the glory. So Ortberg writes this, we do not simply want to see glory. We want to be a part of the glory. When we lived in Chicago, he says, a friend of ours regularly gave us Bulls tickets, basketball tickets. Every year I would take my son Johnny to a game. The seats were located alongside the tunnel at the United Center. So when the Bulls ran out onto the floor, when Michael Jordan would run through the tunnel, everybody nearby wanted to give him a high five. They wanted to share his glory. We all want to touch glory. We want to connect with it. We want to be a part of it, even though we know we are not worthy. The Bulls had a reserve player named Stacy King. During the 1990 season, King only started six games, 82-game season, six games, averaged 15 minutes per game. But one night, during an overtime game against Cleveland, he contributed to an important victory. He said it would always be the greatest memory of his life, the night he and Michael Jordan combined, he and Michael Jordan combined, to score 70 points in an NBA playoff game. Michael Jordan scored 69 points, <laughs> but King shared in the glory. That's you and me and Jesus. We can't do it. We get overwhelmed. I don't have the power, the spiritual force to be able to carry it out. And Jesus says, I got you. You just keep playing. You just keep running the court. You just keep doing what you do best. You leave it to me. I will empower you. So when it comes to that question, how do we enter in to the throne room, into the presence of God? Is there somebody who can get us there? Jesus says, I'll get you there. Fully and freely. Free entrance because I participate fully in both. And I can bring together and reconcile forces that have been driven asunder by the power of sin. I will empathize with you, but I will empower you. And it was for that reason that when people in a very dark time were asking, how do we get into the presence of God? That Martin Luther and the other reformers said, actually, it's quite simple. Solus Christus. Gracious God, we thank you from the core of our beings for Jesus. He shows us your heart. Your heart is good and grace-filled toward us. But because you are a high and a holy God, sin separates. So, Lord, we thank you for one who can empathize, one who can empower, and one who can bring us into the very presence of God. In his name, amen.